Hey, everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And we're here for the Invested Podcast, where we're learning to invest like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and make 15% a year. And hopefully, we can all do that. It was so exciting if we oh, can. I like that intro, Dad. I Thank think you. we're like steadily, we're almost at 200 episodes, and we're steadily boiling down our intro. By yeah. episode 300, the, epi- the intro is going to be like four words. It'll be like, hey. Let's go. It'll be like, you guys know us. Let's talk. All right. So let's talk now. (laughs) So, Dad, last week, we told everybody that we were going to speak at the Amazon Fishbowl the next day um, after the podcast came out, and we did. And it was so cool to go. It was so cool watching you you be a total on-camera performer person. You were awesome. Oh, well, I I just had fun. I did too, I think. I did too. I had a really good time. Everybody in the room was very, very cool about the whole thing and really into investing. And then on top of that, we had, I don't know, what, 34,000 people pick up the, what? As of the day we're recording this, we've had 40,000 views of our fishbowl video, which you guys (laughs) can go look it up. It's on amazon.com's Facebook page. So it's not amazon.com, it's facebook.com and then amazon.com's Facebook page. And um, yeah, I mean, amazing. We really, we only announced it last minute to you guys because we actually had been told that it was only internal to Amazon, which we were happy to do because we wanted to go visit Amazon. And um, you were happy to do it. I was like, no, I'm not flying across the United States to talk to 150 people. Don't (laughs) tell everybody that. You were a little bit salty about it, but then I explained to you that there would be, what was it? Like 500, how many people work for Amazon? Like some 500,000 in ballpark. Like 500,000. So, so what they do at this fishbowl event is they have so many famous people come in. They have one almost, they have one every week and sometimes they have two per week and it's all like ultra famous intelligentsia. And they street they have people like in the room live if you happen to work in their headquarters in seattle but then for all the amazon employees who work around the world they stream it live internally on their internal network and so you know we knew that there would be maybe 150 people in the room they were like maybe it'll be 20 we can't predict anything but we got like 150 so that was cool um it was a full room and then and then they streamed it out to everybody and we didn't know anything about this. <laughs> which <laughs> actually underlines, it underlines something I've been teaching you your entire life and which I've sort of gotten a little older and sort of forget my own teaching, right? Which is 90% of whatever success I've had in my life really comes pretty much from showing up. <laughs> it's like if a door opens, you kind of, you know, walk through it, even if it's sort of a pain in the neck and you don't really think anything will come from it. And many times nothing does, but man, you just can't know for sure. And if you really want to be successful, I think that's one of the great things to do. Just show up over and over again for stuff. It was worth it also because, yeah, like as part of that showing up, it turns out that my close friend from college and Teal Pennebaker ended up interviewing us, which was just like crazy amazing. Which I started to think was a setup from square one. It was not, but that's what's... Wellesley women. It's not a very interesting story if it's a setup from square one, is it? 
they gamed me to get me to Seattle to talk to a hundred people. And then it actually turned out to be way bigger than that. And I can talk to her for free anytime I want. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. I mean, you guys have been friends since college and she says on the air, Danielle got me my first job. It's true. I hired her to be an editor at the Wellesley news with me. And that's how we became friends. And we've been friends ever since Wellesley news. Love it. I remember aside a Wellesley aside a Nora Ephron aside I was at a panel at Wellesley and Teal and I actually like randomly she brought this up when we were hanging out after the event she was like remember that panel we went to and I think we were sitting together even at Wellesley it was some kind of like uh, anniversary at Wellesley and all these luminary alumni came the the plural of Illuminary alumni? Did you no, just say the that? plural Illuminary alumna. Alum. Here's some Latin for you that you learn when you go to a women's college. The plural of alumna is alumni. The ah. plural of alumnus or alumna together, as in mixed, is hmm. alumni. And this, so, is, this is like secret code words. This is like the, a decoder ring or a secret handshake. Yeah. You say words and then people who don't get it at dinner, they're not your class. It's nothing to do with class. It's to do with having, being an alum of a, women, of a women's college. So we were sitting in the audience watching Nora Ephron speak, who went to Wellesley and loved Wellesley and is one of the most, in my opinion, incredible writers of the 20th century. And she sat there and she said, I really started my writing career at the Wellesley News. And it was the greatest training ground I could have had. And Teal and I kind of like nudged each other. We were like, that's awesome. And then the person next to Nora Ephron, who unfortunately I don't remember who it was, said she started her writing career at the Wellesley News. And we kind of looked around because like, frankly, being on the Wellesley News was not that, that cool of a thing to do. <laughs> not as prestigious as it sounded 30 years later. Well, it was prestigious, but it wasn't cool. Oh. And... Um, and we were like, oh, maybe what we're doing is okay if Nora Ephron and other luminaries have done it. So, so it was just very cool for us, you know, 15 years later to be sitting together on stage at Amazon simply because she happens to work at Amazon, simply because I happen to get invited to Amazon. Like, and simply then- because you happen to write a New York Times bestselling book. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> That probably had something to do with it. That's, that's right. That's yeah. why we got invited. And there we were in Seattle, which is must be Nora Ephron's home because she wrote Sleepless in Seattle, so she must live there. Oh, look at all the connections. Yeah. <laughs> so it was very cool. And you can watch the video on Amazon.com's Facebook page. Um, go check it out if you haven't already. It was a good conversation. And if you haven't already gone to Wellesley, you should just go there. Yeah, exactly. Just go to school at Wellesley <laughs> if you're a girl. And then after the talk... We got to walk around headquarters a bit, which I put up on my Instagram and, or pictures anyway, obviously. It was so great to walk around and get the energy of that place. I just loved it because I work by myself now and it's very different than being in like that kind of people constantly creating kind of atmosphere. It felt like a university campus to me because it's multiple buildings within the city and, you know, everybody kind of works in one or one or the other building, but then they can 
go to any of the buildings they want and use them to work in. So everybody's sort of moving around a lot and there's a lot of interaction and different cafeterias and places to go. Yeah, and um, if you think like um, a sheath dress, Birkenstock sandals and an army jacket are high fashion, you're going to love Seattle. I don't know what to do with that comment. <laughs> what? I'm looking around Seattle. It's like the grunge movement has not left Seattle. I, I'm just saying, because I just went to Vancouver right after Seattle. I just spent three days in Vancouver teaching a thousand people rule one investing and everybody dresses nicely in Vancouver. Like, like you're going out. Okay. It's such it, a huge contrast. What everybody can I over the age of 35. No, <laughs> no, not at all. No, not at all. I mean, I just think there's a really different culture thing, which has nothing to do with investing. Why don't we get back to the whole point of this podcast as quickly as we can? Oh, because I think it's fascinating to talk about what Amazon headquarters is like, but fine. Because I ran right out and made a, made a bet on Amazon. You made a bet on Amazon. What does that I mean? Like you purchased Amazon shares? I did just for a, a brief moment. Actually, I sold uh, a kind of a, what's called a bull put spread. And you don't want to know. You yeah, don't want to know what that is. you explained that to us once. And I <laughs> don't really want to know. I just went out there and it was, it was just from looking at this incredible place and talking to these people about their ownership in this stock. And you start to realize, well, obviously the stock is extremely high priced. It, the company has to do very, very well to make it worth it. Um, but it's doing very, very well. And it's a lot like owning um, a building that's a prime piece of real estate, right? It's like perfect location, New York City, um, and it's always going to be worth a lot. And it's always probably going to go up in value. So it's one of those things where you, if you plan on owning a piece of New York real estate, you're going to have to pay up. And that's just all there is to it, unless you're waiting for the once every 40 year, you know, real estate problem. Yeah, but well. That's kind, of, that's kind of how I think about Amazon right now. That's what I wanted to talk about with our visit to headquarters before you so rudely tried to derail me on this. <laughs> we got to go to the Amazon Go shop, which is the cashierless grocery store. You download an app on your phone. We stood outside of the store and did it, didn't we, Dad? We did. I have to say that was mind-boggling. So we downloaded, we the up, app. downloaded the app right there in the street. Took you like just sign into your Amazon account. You have to have the app, but you don't have to have it open on your phone. You just have to have it on your phone. No, you have to have it open. You got to go through with the, with the barcode. Scanner. Oh, you're right. You're right. It had to be open when we went through the initial little gateway area. Yeah. Like, like putting your phone at the, at the gate, uh, getting on an airplane. You, you right. get it scanned right there. I forgot about that. Scans exactly that barcode. Right. Or whatever that thing is called, that square thing. Yeah. Uh, and then you QR go in. Code. And then you go in and you can close it. Yeah, you're right. You can close it on your phone and just put your phone away. Yeah. And somehow there are cameras in the shop that track your phone and the body that goes with the phone. And it can tell what you pull off the shelf. And the uh, algorithm is proprietary. And the guy who was showing us around, Don, hi, Don. Don Jenkins was amazing. Um, yeah, Don. That was uh, you know, he may know or he may not know how it works, but he did not tell us how it works. And it's crazy. He said if you have two people who are both grabbing Cokes off the shelf at the same time, which as we all know can happen in a really busy store, somehow they, it works. Like they know that 
each person separately with separate Amazon accounts, grabbed one Coke each. I find it extraordinary. Yeah, and then one of you could put the, put the Coke back and they'd know which one did it. Yeah. And they'd only charge the one that didn't put it back. And it's just, basically, you walk into the store, you barcode or whatever you do are, like, what do you call it, QR code? QR code. And then you walk in the store, you put stuff in a bag and you walk out. That's it, done. done. You don't go through any lines, you don't look at anybody and ask permission, you just put stuff in your bag and leave and it's unreal. So there's the future. Well, exactly. And here's the point. This is why it's so cool to talk about visiting headquarters because I knew that they had done that. I knew they had created those shops. It was news when the first one opened. But to actually go and see, not see, like, like experience what our stores are going to be like in the future and the way Amazon is changing things. God, it just changed the way I think about this company. It's kind yeah. of like talking about Apple in the abstract versus going out and buying yourself a MacBook Pro, an iPad, and an iPhone, and having it change your life and going, oh, I get why Apple is a thing. And it's it, with Amazon Go, I mean, it's such a small part of their company. It's tiny. I mean, it's nascent technology. It's not going to come out everywhere for a while. But the fact that it's a company that creates such a thing and puts resources into such a thing and supports its managers in creating a flyer, like taking a flyer on something like that. Hey, I'm annoyed with the lines at the grocery store. I want to create something. And they go, okay, here's millions. Go for it. That's right. extraordinary. That is. And I think it, it really... Um it gets exacerbated. I don't know if the right word is exacerbated. The, the, the experience gets extended as you walk into the Seattle streets because here comes a trolley and it's got a huge Amazon uh, advertisement on it and it says one hour delivery. And there's the next uh. boggler is that, oh, I can get online with Amazon, go bing, 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 and whatever I just ordered shows up in an hour. I mean, man, that's a whole nother, nother world, right? Yeah, because that's like food delivery, every all kinds of things can be handled from that sort of level. And knowing that Amazon bought 400 stores when they bought Whole Foods mm -hmm. um, and they have stores within the reach of the vast majority of the U.S. population, they're they're getting set to roll that out. And I'm oh. so excited yeah. because if, if I could order Whole Foods uh, on an hour delivery, I mean, uh, heck. I would well, do that every day. You live in the middle of nowhere, Dad. I don't know if you're ever going to be able to order anything on an hour delivery. <laughs> it's true. I need that drone to be dragging my food over Don't here. Get too excited. Yeah, exactly. You're going to get like a helicopter yeah. drop in your backyard. Yeah, in the backyard to be like, you know, half a mile away from our house. I'm like, oh, dang. Dropped it about half a mile away from the house again. It'd be like the kind of parachute drops I used to get down in Latin America. Hey, we're here. We're here. And they drop it like two miles away in the jungle. So. Yeah. But what I do see is that connection between the Amazon Go cashier list store concept and Whole Foods. And when like looking back on it, it's so obvious. It's so obvious. I didn't make that connection until I went there in person. And that's yeah. that scuttlebutt concept that, yeah. and I can't remember the name of the person who wrote the book about finding investing scuttlebutt do you remember Templeton. that it's either templeton or fisher <laughs> okay one of those two <laughs> um, where the idea is like you you really 
put boots on the ground and go look at what you are actually investing in and actually buying and get a sense of it in person. And I, I don't know, that really came home to me with this visit to Seattle. It was to, to Amazon. It was really yeah, I, I went straight out and made about $15,000 on it. So hopefully, yeah, Scuttlebutt's Phil Fisher idea. I just Googled it. Good job. <laughs> Early pioneer of modern investment techniques. <laughs> well, and I'm trying to convince myself that Amazon's price is not too high, which I'm working on. You know, I just, I, on, on the notion of scuttlebutt, just to, just to wander here for a second, Please. I just uh, watched a video of Lee Lu, who is one of the, um, one of the students that, um, so a part of the uprising in Tiananmen Square back in 1989. And he escaped as a, apparently a combination of the CIA, the French underground, and the Hong Kong mafia. <laughs> it's pretty cool. How do you know that? He wrote a book about it. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so L-I-L-U. And um, he became a phenomenal rule one type investor. He, he went to Columbia University, um, listened to Warren Buffett talk there, and just decided, you know, I'm going to become an investor like that. That's what I want to do. And he's compounding money. I, I heard, I don't know for sure, but I heard he, he's done it at 30% a year for the last 15 years or so. Mm. Phenomenal, successful uh, investor. And he was talking at Columbia um, in, in a class of value investors and basically saying, look, it's really important you do this kind of scuttlebutt stuff. Hmm. He didn't call it that, but that's essentially what he was talking about. To the point of even going you know, to the town where the CEO lives and try to get an understanding of what, what he's like from people who live there, if it's a small enough town and if you can ask enough people. And he actually did that, uh, trying to get the get an idea about whether you should invest in Timberline or not um, many years ago and talked about that in class. So this idea of scuttlebutt is, is really Warren Buffett loves the idea of digging in deep, right? You got to be capable of understanding and digging in deep is part of that process. You have to do it. Yeah. Which is why you can't, nobody's investing who owns 50, 60, a hundred things. They, they just are not investing. There's no way you can get to that level of understanding about a business if you own that many of them. You uh, mean know. they're speculating? They're speculating. Yeah, even if they're <laughs> value investors. And this is, um, Lee Lu was speaking actually in Bruce Greenwald's class. Bruce is a famous value investor. Now, hold on. What are you talking about here? Is this, this something you watched on YouTube? Yeah, but I, and I'd tell you where to go look for it, but I don't know where to go look for it. I, well, I, just I bet if you just put in Lee Lu and Lee Lu, Columbia University. And who's the professor? Greenwald. Okay. Yep. And it's so interesting because he basically chews out this Columbia University class of MBA geniuses and starts looking over like, what's wrong with you people? You don't know the most basic things about investing. The things, by the way, <laughs> as an aside, we are teaching you on this podcast hmm. are the things he's talking about. And they don't teach that even in Bruce Greenwald's value investing class, because what they teach is so many things. And everybody believes in diversification and spreading out your investment across a million things. And, you know, that's the only way you're going to really be successful. And if you go to Wall Street, that's all they want to hire. They're not going to hire you if you do this kind of investing. Forget it. But Lee Lu said, I'm not going to hire you if you're an MBA student at Columbia. I am not going to hire you guys because you get educated in the wrong stuff. I'd rather hire somebody that doesn't know anything and I can teach them what the right stuff is. So there you go. Everybody's hey, listening to this podcast. You're going to Columbia Business School. There you go. <laughs> right there. You just saved yourself 100000 a year. 
this, in other words, our podcast is worth over $200,000 to each of you. I just want to thank you for listening. And um, you know, I think people should start putting send, it on yeah. their resumes, dad. You'd send checks to me. Podcast listener invested. <laughs> That's, 2000, what year is it? 2018, 2015 to 2018. Yeah. Rule one podcast. Regular. <laughs> weekly. <laughs> You know what? I you, if I saw that from somebody, I would be thinking seriously about about talking to them about interning with me. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Um, yeah. So the the scuttlebutt thing is is I got to read that book because for some reason it's like you know things pop up in your life and they kind of pop up and you're like whatever and then they kind of pop up a few times and you start to think all right maybe I better pay attention to this. This is happening for me right now in real time with scuttlebutt which I just think is, by the way, such a ridiculously anachronistic word and hilarious. So maybe that's intriguing me as well. Well, yeah, it's a very World War II word, I'm pretty sure. Totally. But I've been hearing it for some reason. It's been popping up the last month or so, a whole bunch. I think I need to read this book by Phil Fisher. The book by Phil Fisher is Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits. And it is a very, very good book. It's one of those basic books to read if you're going to be a ruler um, type investor and you should read it. I've read it. it. (laughs) I've read it. Um, well, so today, dad, we were planning to talk about our owner earnings. Um, and we are formula that we've been, you know, promising. We've sort of talking about it, uh, semi on the regular here. And we got distracted by Amazon as we tend to do. And we've gotten, um, We've got some other like cool stuff, cool ideas that we want to give you guys on the podcast coming up, like talking mm-hmm. about some of this crazy stuff that's happening internationally in the markets. I think we should definitely talk about that. And that's a timely thing. So we are, we've got our owner earnings that's happening here, you guys, but we might also take a few little, uh, little detours to comment on more timely things as well. So just, just be aware that that's yeah. our plan. And just, just for fun. If, and and I'm stipulating here, that famous word you taught me, I'm stipulating that owner earnings for Amazon um, might ballpark out at around $10 billion, just saying, for Amazon, $10 billion. Um, That's your opinion. Yeah, it's not even my opinion. I'm just really taking windage here because I haven't dug in that deep. Okay, Um, yeah. I was wondering how you got that out of the blue. I just made it up. Oh. No, I didn't just make it up. (laughs) (laughs) They have, as of 2017, they have about $18 billion of cash flow from operations, but they spend a huge amount of it on building the company, right? On building new stuff. And, um, and yeah. so their free cash flow is, is about mm, seven, seven to $8 billion in that ballpark, something, $7 billion, let's call it. That's free That's cash flow. Insane. But the way, I know, $7 billion. Seven billion. But look at this here. If, if we were to say, all right, Amazon's going to not grow. It's just going to be seven billion, seven billion, seven billion, and that's the money you could put in your pocket every year if you owned it. If you were Jeff Bezos and it, it wasn't a public company, you could conceivably put seven billion in your pocket. You wouldn't try to grow the company because mm-hmm. seven billion would be like okay to live on. So you go okay, seven billion, and eight years later, I've collected fifty-six billion dollars. So seven billion times eight. $56 billion, which is what we would say, okay, that would be a pretty good price to pay for Amazon. If it wasn't growing at all, I'd pay $56 billion. Okay. Can you do all that again for me? Sure. 
you got you got operating cash flow. This is right off their financial statement. Operating well, cash the flow. Most recent one. No, it's they've got a couple of quarters in already. But this is the uh, last annual one. Yeah, that's what I mean. The last annual. Yeah, last annual one. So they got eighteen point four billion in uh, operating cash flow. So that's the money they got in the bank. Okay. In the, and then they're going to take out because they don't really have that money in the bank because they spend a bunch of it on things you can't write off, which are called capital expenditures, or on most financial statements they're called the purchase of property and equipment. And that added up to net about 10 billion after they sold some stuff. So about 10 billion. So that left them with about, I, I'm, I'm standing corrected, about 8.4 billion in free cash flow. So that's how you call it, find free cash flow. Operating cash flow minus purchase of property and equipment equals free cash flow. And theoretically, at least, that's the money you could put in your pocket. Um, as far as generally accepted accounting principles go, that's, that's what would go in your pocket and you could spend it. So Jeff, could, Jeff Bezos could spend, you know, 8.4 billion. But you also have to add in any other capital expenditures for maintenance and growth that they have. Is there anything like that? No. Okay. I don't have anything else. Then At least that is zero. Like right, zero. Okay. And it is for most, most companies throw it all in under PP&E. But sometimes like Whole Foods didn't, which was always a surprise. You pointed that out to me, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they did. So, oh, I miss them. They did such a good job. They were good. So $8.4 billion. Now, we're not going to grow. You guys, if you're following along in the book, that's on page 203 of our book, Invested. And if you're driving, yes. don't try to look it up. I am following along in my own book. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> so you get $8.4 billion, and that is all of the purchase and property of equipment and capital expenditures includes stuff you're spending on growth, growing the business, but whatever. We'll just say the business doesn't grow. So you get $8.4 billion. Now, what I'd like to do is buy it for eight years of that or less. Eight years of free cash flow or less. And what we're doing here is the payback time calculation based on free cash flow. Right, so ballpark, give or take $5 billion, is um, roughly 70 billion that I'd pay for the business. Okay, there we go, 70 billion, not 56, which is where we were in a minute ago, because I was making bad math. Wait, so, but you're not doing payback time. You're no, just I'm multiplying not. it by eight. Yeah, I know. So oh. that's if it didn't grow. Oh, I would pay got it, got it, got it. 70 billion, okay. Yeah. All right, now if it grows, I got to use a growth rate. So shoot, yeah. I don't know. And then it gets complicated because you got to use, you know, formulas and stuff like that that's in the book or you use an Excel spreadsheet, but just ballparking the heck out of it here. Let's Go just say it. we when grow it, it at- When did it like crazy? 30% a year. I don't know. Some crazy number. All right. 26%. We double it every three years. All every right. three years for, for, for 10, for, for the next eight years. We're going to double it every three years. That seems like we're going to get a hopelessly optimistic result. Well, we, he has a huge number. So we've got. Do like 10%. No, I'm going to do a big number. 8.4. 8.4 is going to double to 17 in three years. So that's the first year is 8.4 and the second year is 10. I don't know. I'm guessing. Second year is 10. Now we got 18. Third year is 15. Now we get. 33 and the fourth year is is 16 and now we've got 50 so we're so far we're adding up the free cash flow after three years we've got 50 and it keeps growing really big like that right so 50, i don't know so we end up with with 200 billion dollars i'm just winging it here okay. 200 billion dollars is what we would have 
received back in our pocket after eight years. And that's what we could pay for Amazon. I don't know, 300 billion. That's what we could pay for Amazon. And that would be a pretty good deal. 300 billion. All right. Um, just huge number. Total right? bone it like crazy. Nothing to do with anything. No, it's just like, here's huge numbers. Very poorly grow. calculated. We're going to grow right. this $8 billion at an amazingly fast rate. And we're going to add it all up. And it, after only eight years, this $8 billion has grown and accumulated $300 billion of cash. I doubt that it would be that high, but let's just say. Okay. All right. Right now, Amazon's selling for $1 trillion, or three times bigger than that. Yeah. <clears throat> now, yeah. that is stunning when you think about it. <clears throat> so, I thought, well, maybe the reason is, is because owner earnings is a lot higher than that. So, owner earnings is different. Owner earnings is taking into account um, a lot of a, a different way of looking at the numbers. Um, and I ran through it, and basically what I saw is that it's got about 15, and then uh, 10, and then 7. Is, I came up with about $17 billion, roughly, for 2017. And now I've got to subtract whatever is maintenance of that $10 billion. What's the maintenance piece? So oh, I don't know. Before maintenance. Okay. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Let's, yeah, let's well, be that's real the aggressive. Part where we have to understand the business. It's, let's just say it's fun. only $2 billion of maintenance. The rest of it is all growth related. So I end up with $15 billion of owner earnings. Here I am going, oh, well, that's the part you have to understand. And you're just like, let's just pick a number. This is what you Two do. You billion. just get the numbers. And you don't have to be like, you don't let's have to get out get an Excel spreadsheet and dig out your calculator. You just look at this stuff and you go, okay, well, what's the ballpark? Give or take billions. And that's 15 billion. And it probably isn't that high. So 15 billion, all right? And then I do it to 10 cap. Yes. You have what price I want to put on it, which gives me how much, Danielle? Should 150. 150 billion. And it's selling for? A trillion. One trillion. <laughs> I want to pay 150 billion and it's selling for 1,000 billion. <laughs> so I'm just off a little. So here I've tried these two ways of getting at the value of, uh, or at a price I could pay for Amazon. And I'm falling so massively short. So you can see from that how much... Uh, extra price is being put on this company in anticipation of miracles happening. Hmm. I already did it with miracles happening, right? And they, and still I'm way short with uh, payback time. So you're going to have to bake in a gigantic, gigantic earnings growth rate on this company. And the bigger it gets, the harder it is to fulfill that sort of fantastic thing. And what I want to urge you to consider is that in 1999, we had a similar example of Yahoo, which was the great, great uh, future hope. And um, at that point in time, Yahoo was selling at a 29,000 PE ratio. And what this implied was that Yahoo would have to grow to encompass all of the GDP of America. All of the sales of every single thing in America would have to be Yahoo advertising. No one would buy food. No one would buy gas. No one would buy real estate. They'd only buy Yahoo advertising, which is obviously stupid. And yeah. yet the thing was priced that high. Hmm. So are, are people who are buying Amazon at, a th at, at whatever the price is here, um, at, at a trillion dollar valuation, are you being, you know, Yahoo stupid and it's 1999, here we are 20 years later, here we go again. Or, you know, like the Amazon employees, are you looking at this thing and you just think that the, 
that the brain power that this company's assembled, that the areas that they're disrupting across the entire con continent of ideas, uh, of, of retail, of everything. God, man, I mean, they're, now they're starting to take on UPS and Federal Express with their own transportation systems. Mm -hmm. They're doing, I mean, it's like, where do they stop? And, and Movies, the everything. Yeah, everything. So, uh, I mean, maybe they are. Yahoo obviously didn't fulfill that promise. Maybe Amazon does. Maybe we're crazy not to buy it right now. But this is not the kind of thing we do. We don't no. go no. in there. Anybody, and buy uh, there's no, there's no question that purchasing Amazon right now, regardless of how much I believe in the company, regardless of what I think it will do in the future, the price is not defensible, according to Rule One Value Investing. It's just right. not. Right. Let me just lay that out there. It is indefensible. <laughs> but that said, I am looking at it and I think, okay, so let me run this by. Is it, I know what you're going to say. You're already going to say that it's, this is dumb and incorrect, but whatever. Um, if one, <laughs> if one were to purchase some anonymous company at some very high valuation price, that is indefensible. And one did such a thing because one was aware that at some point that price would probably fall. And then because one really liked the company so much, one would then purchase more of the company at that stop, lower price. Stop with the one. I, I almost can't hear anything else you're saying. I think you're saying Fine. But something I'm trying to make about it Amazon. Universal because this could happen with many companies right now. It's not just. Amazon. Office. I don't even know what you're asking. I got lost. Okay, in fine, the dad. Fine. If I were to buy Amazon right now at a very high price, and then when the price crashes, let's assume it will, I then bought more Amazon at the lower price, thereby making my, what is that called? Like a cost average basis or something? Anyway, my yeah, average. Adjusted basis. Yeah. Lower than it would be right now, but not as low as the lowest price, obviously. Um, is that like a terrible way to think about dealing with high-priced companies right now? It's a terrible way to think about dealing with any company that you're going to pay a price that, that isn't fair. Like it's a wonderful business. We all know it's a wonderful business, but now we have to buy it at a fair price. And there's nothing fair about a trillion dollars in our view of how you look at a company because it anticipates miracles happening and magic going on in a way that's never happened to a company in the history of the world. And it anticipates Amazon taking over everything. And all of that kind of has to happen. I'm not saying it won't, but there's a lot of potential, you know, landmines that it could step on between now and there. Not the, not the least of which is monopoly yeah. legislation, right? For sure. We're just going to break you up. Um, so I, I, you have to, you, you can't just jump in because you like something. And the reason you can't is because you, I don't want you to buy a little bit of something. That's a terrible idea. We buy stuff and load up the truck. That means we're looking at 10% of our portfolio at a minimum, 20% maximum. We really want to own a big chunk so that when we do all this work, when we finally find something that's on sale that we understand, we're going to benefit dramatically from the purchase. 
It won't do you any good to buy a little bit of Amazon other than, you know, what did you call that in the book? You, you practice shares. Practice shares. Have at it as practice shares. And maybe you just want to own a little to just kind of be a shareholder because you really love the, the ideas that they're putting out there. But don't consider it an investment. I, I mean, in rule number one, I talked about using 10% of your portfolio for risky business. Amazon would qualify at this price. Not that it's risky in the sense, will it be around in 10 years? It's going to be around in 10 years. It'll be more productive in 10 years. I'll, I'll go with that. But I just don't know what to pay for it. I don't want to pay a trillion dollars. Yeah, I mean, I hear you. Let me, let me ask it one more time in a different way. All right. Is buying a company at an overly high price and then assuming that you're going to buy more when it falls could that be considered a hedge against the market con continuing to rise? A okay. useful hedge. Now that is quite an interesting question. So here's the question restated. Please. The market's ridiculously too high. I can't find anything I really like and I want to own at a price that's fair. Correct. But I want to speculate that it's going to continue to go up because I don't want to just sit here with my money in cash and have this continue to go up for the next three years. And, I, and it goes up at 10% a year. And I'm going to look back three years from now and go, crud, I could have had another 40% improvement in my portfolio. Correct. If and I just stuck it into something. I'm assuming that it's going to go down and I'll be excited to buy more when it does. Yeah. And what are you going to use to buy more with? Additional money in my portfolio. Where, where is it coming from? Well, I'm not going to spend 100% of my money on one company. Well, why would you do it on one company? Why wouldn't you do this on every company? Why just Amazon? Let's say you have a list of 10 companies you want to own. They're all overpriced. Mm -hmm. So now in pursuit of this idea of, of speculating that the market will go up, you buy all 10 of them. Oh, that's a and good. You're all in. That's you're a all great in. point. Yeah, you're that's, all in with the market. There's no, there's no reason to follow this philosophy and only do it with one. I take your no, point. You do it all, and so therefore you're going to run right into the emotional rule of investing, which says. But but wait wait I haven't answered your question yet. <laughs> Tell me the emotional rule of investing. If you put all your money into the market right now, it will go down like a brick. I know it's, and, and frankly, guys, like that is true for me in every possible way. So don't ever do anything I do. And so it's here so you are bad. trying to, I am the you least arguing you want to take on the face of the earth. You want to take advantage of the market's rise and, and like it's 1928, but you don't care. And it's like, all right, this is just going to keep going. I know it's crazy, but I want to be in it because no, all I'm saying it's are. not crazy. It's not crazy. It's a, it's a plan. Well, it would be a plan if you used a little bit of your money. So, but I haven't answered your question yet. You asked okay. me, from what funds would I continue to purchase such companies? Very if good. one, I'm going to keep annoying you, if oh, one were to purchase additional shares in additional particular companies, what would one purchase such funds, such stocks with what funds? Okay, here's the I've answer. I've had construction guys come up to me and say, you know what, man? I'm listening to the podcast. Danielle is me. I mean, these are guys like, seriously, they're like blue collar, 
guys with, you know, 50 years old tattoos, stocky, working outside, you know, man, man guys. And they're going like, Danielle is me. Dad, that can't guys, possibly be true if you talk like this. are feeling me so much right now on this question. None of them, not, I can't even understand what you're saying when you keep doing one, one, one. <laughs> Stop it. I can't, that's, uh, just talk like a regular person for a minute. <laughs> I just like annoying you so much. Um, all right, listen. So here's the answer. You taught me to use tranches when I purchase a company. I so, do. If I'm using my, let's say, four tranches, so 20, so given investment, 25, 20% of my portfolio, so I buy 5% and then 5% and then 5%. And that way, if the price goes down, I'm protected and I can continue to buy it as the price goes down. Right. It's me. So in this situation, what I was imagining is that I would buy like tranche one in Amazon or any other company that's, as you said, very high right now, and then have additional allotted money, like investing money that I've allotted to that company still available for when the crash happens. Right. But then at least some portion has gotten started in case, as you said, like, like it goes up and, and, and I, I really would see it as kind of a hedge, but on the market. Well, let me give you the math. Way. Okay, the, the, you, need to, you need to hear the math on this. Oh, the answer is fine. no. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> All, All right. right. Let's make an assumption here that we, in year 10 of a, of a bull market, and now in record territory for the longest one in history, mm-hmm. um, let's just stipulate that this goes on for another three whole years. Mm-hmm. And the market goes up at ten percent a year, mm-hmm. increasing the money you put into these companies by, let's say, forty percent. Let's say fifty percent. Okay. Let's compounded. So let's say you have a million dollar portfolio and you take two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, one tranche, and you pour it into ten companies you really like, or just the SPY, and you're going to ride this two fifty up for the next three years. And it is going to increase that 250 up to 375,000. And you just made 125,000 bucks because you were so wise of doing this. Love it. Love it. Right. Now that money, of course, is completely still in these companies when they drop like a brick. So that is not money you can count a return on over the next six years. Well, but wait a second. What if I can sell as it's dropping? Ooh, so you can really know right when to get out. Yeah, I don't know how to do that. But in my mind, I feel like maybe it's possible. That would be nirvana. (laughs) So we would all love to do that. I've been very, very fortunate the last big times the market's changed. Um, But I didn't do it on the basis of some magic. I did it on the basis of I can't buy stocks right now. And you're trying to buy stocks right now. <clears throat> so let's just finish the numbers. You okay, wait, 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 but I just gotta, I just gotta say what you just said. Yeah. Which is essentially what you're saying is, if I buy right now and it goes up a ton, and then drops, it has no effect on my actual income because I, I haven't sold those stocks. Like I'm just. Well, yeah, but you that. just created dead money, 
right? You got you got 250,000 that went up to 375 and then went straight down by let's say 50%. So now it's yeah. 100 and something. So that's dead money. It's got to go all the way back up there, you know, up 100 or 200 or 300% to get break even, right? So this right. is all dead money. So now you you dead moneyed Dead money. Where did that come from? Mm, it's dead money. It's not. It's not working. That's what happened with people with their four hundred one ks in in two thousand eight and nine. <clears throat> the market went down fifty percent. Their money was dead. It it died for about eight years. It went nowhere. It took eight years to get back up to where it was. Mm-hmm. That's dead money. And meanwhile, inflation's chipping away at it for eight years. So you could reasonably argue that only just recently have those people even broken even after inflation with the money that they had in the market in 2008 before the drop. So back to my point okay. with me, um, you now have $750,000 to work with. Um, but had you taken that 250,000 and just kept it in cash, mm-hmm. just kept it in cash, then waited three years, didn't do anything with it. No rate of return whatsoever. And then in the next six years have happened what happened back in 2009 over the next six years, between 2009 and 2015, the stocks that we own go up something like 36% a year compounded, uh-huh. right? Because you're buying them super cheap and they're blowing, they're just blasting away for five years, they're doubling twice. So what would that would mean is that the 250,000 that you took away would have gone up double twice in the next six years after that to 500 and then to a million. So effectively your strategy um, has taken $250,000 and massively reduced your overall return over a nine year period um, compared to keeping it in cash and going through this drop. And every time I do the math, I'm not going to get all into the details, but you can do the math yourself and you'll, you'll see that staying in cash works out better than trying to hedge. That's what I discovered in my own life. In your own life. (laughs) (laughs) Practical mathematics. Not to mention, not to mention how hard it would be to get this right when you start putting money into the market. You know, well, when exactly do you take it out trying to get it right? And um, assuming you can't figure that out, then it, it really does turn out a lot better. Now, obviously, if you could put your money in and you've got a crystal ball and you can get it back out again after it goes up for 40%, that would be the right way to do it. Yeah. But I don't have that much confidence that you can figure out, oh, now Amazon's really too pricey. Right. No. Uh, and jumped in when it was already out, too pricey. I do not have that ability. No, more better to wait patiently. It's coming as sure as we're all sitting here. The world of economics hasn't changed in some magic way. And we are going to have something trigger this thing and it's going to go down. And there's a bunch of stuff out there right now in the world, any one of which could start the whole ball rolling. And I just think you just got to be really careful at the end of a world record bull market. You got to be careful. Yeah. There was an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal, if anybody's subscribing to it, um, saying that this is like because consumer confidence is so high right now, that's the time the market shifts. People people forget that. I mean, they forget that people were extremely confident in 1929. Well, and 99. Confident in 1999. People were extremely confident in 2007. All of these preceded gigantic meltdowns of the market. 
Yeah. So yeah. Confidence. If you're a subscriber, check out that article because yeah. the charts on there, I, I, the article was interesting, but the charts got me because you can visually see this consumer confidence index at its highest. And then it's like, boom, the market crashes immediately. And then it's like, at its highest <laughs> the next time, boom, the car. And I was just like, oh my God. And here we are. Consumer confidence at its highest. Yep. Right. And oh, you know, it's just, you know, plus we just have, we have Trump doing what Trump's doing. We have Turkey doing what it's, Erdogan's doing what he's doing. Argentina's in the process of melting down. Brazil looks like it's going to join it. The Hong Kong stock market just went into a bear market. China is shaky. I mean, there's all kinds of things to get worried about here if, you're in, if you have a notion to worry. And I just prefer to be sitting in cash and sort of like sitting back watching the game. All right. Fair enough. I'm, yeah. I'm thinking about it a lot though, but fair enough. And we should probably hear something from everybody on that one. If you want to send some comments to Danielle, <laughs> fire away. And um, we'll get back to a little more into the deeper water of owner earnings here next time. And until then, I think it's time to go play. I like talking about Amazon. That was fun though. Yeah, it was pretty cool. All right. Thanks, everybody. You can send Thanks questions. As my dad said, you can send questions to questions at investedpodcast.com. And thank you so much. See ya. Bye. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. And if you're not sure how much money you need to retire, which would be something you should know, you may be shocked to discover that chances are you need a whole lot more than you think you do. Head over to investedpodcast.com slash calculator to use our free retirement calculator. It'll show you exactly where you stand and how much you will need to enjoy the lifestyle you want. If you enjoyed this episode, you guys, and you want more information, including show notes and more episodes, just visit us at investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you.